1: From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Robert Smith, coastal coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. On today's show, we'll talk about the different color variations of our animal friends. What animals have you seen change their colors in your area of the state? Do some animals change colors with the seasons? And what animals use different color variations as camouflage or protection? Join our conversation this morning with your phone calls. The number is one mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 7464 or send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield is retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today, Robert Smith, the coastal coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. On today's show, we're going to talk about the different color variations of our animal friends. What animals have you seen change your colors in your areas of the state? Do some animals change colors with the seasons, or do they use color variations as camouflage or protection? You can join the conversation this morning with your questions and comments. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464, or send us an email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. You always get two chances to hear Creature Comforts each week. We repeat the show Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good. Doing good morning. Yeah. Morning. Uh, Libby, we'd like to talk about things going on at the museum. And you got, I guess, one of your annual events coming up here. Uh, what is it? Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow.
2: Tomorrow night is Cajun Christmas, December the 9th. And uh, Cajun Christmas starts at 5.30 and ends at 9.00, and there's just incredible amount of stuff to do. There's the, the a Cajun food truck is going to be there if you want to purchase any food. Uh, the girl choir performs at 6.30. The boy choir at 7.30. The scuba Santa is going to be diving in the tanks and feeding fish. Uh, Christmas Gator is going to be there. Uh, crafts with Olaf and Mr. Bingle and swamp critter ornaments you can make, and you can make instant <laughs> snow. I'm going just for that. <laughs> I, I, I figure I've got to learn to make instant snow. You can send your letter to Santa Claus. There's the North Pole post office is right there, and there's even a Christmas light trail outside in the native plant garden, <laughs> which means you need to bundle up. I think it's going to be it's going to be a seasonal event by it being nice and cool tomorrow
1: night. Be cool, I think, it's a bit of an <laughs> yeah, understatement. Yeah, it's going to be real cool, yeah. <laughs> but Bottle you're right. Bundle
2: up and come on. What yeah. better
1: way to have a, a good Christmas uh, uh, program than a, some, uh, a snap of cold weather, which I think uh, all of us here in Mississippi are, are about to uh, actually start it today and I think uh, should last through the weekend. So
2: Yeah, I love the fact that the animals take center stage at the Christmas event, and it is, but it's very much like an old-fashioned kind of thing that you might we might have done when we were kids
1: all right um we have our guest today and it is uh robert smith the coastal coordinator for wildlife mississippi robert thanks for joining us appreciate the chance to come up uh first tell us a little bit about what wildlife mississippi is
3: wildlife mississippi is a nonprofit uh, working across the state of mississippi to help make sure we've got good wildlife habitats uh for future generations to enjoy
1: All right. Um, So we're going to be talking about uh, color variations. Uh, Is that
3: something that uh, you have been interested in 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 your career? It is. There's... uh People have always been interested in animals that are a different color, and oddly colored animal. I remember whenever I was a young fellow uh, called an uh, albino soft-shell turtle right where the Luxembourg River hits the Tom Bigby River. And I got to keep that at home for several months and feed it and take care of it until my dad and mom finally convinced me to let it go again. And, um, you know, every time somebody sees an oddly colored animal, uh, it goes viral on Facebook. And so people have always been interested in things that are a little different. And so it's a, a neat thing to see and talk about.
1: I know when I look at my cat he's got stripes I always wonder what it would be like to have like striped hair or something like that without yeah. the product that you buy at the uh, at the beauty salon we have that. <laughs> I'll help you do that yeah. uh, but the other thing that's interesting thing again about the cats is the sort of the layer if you you know it seems like uh, there's uh, different colored fur uh, at different parts and, and different layers of them. So uh, this r- r- really, when you think about it, in the animal world, the uh, color variations are, are wide. So this uh, should be uh, interesting. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, albinism to start our discussion. Uh, first, uh, remind us of what that is and uh, uh, what sort of
3: effects does that have in the animal world. Albinos are, we typically think of albinos as the most common color anomaly in wildlife and, uh, it's a complete absence of pigment. It's where the, the cells, the genes that color, cause color to be there, cause light to reflect off the fur, feathers, or scales, is completely absent. So it's a white animal. They typically have pink eyes, sometimes have blue eyes. Um, when you first look at an animal, and an albino is what we call melanistic. It doesn't have melanin. And so two different things can, can cause an animal to be amelanistic. One would be to be pure albino, where the uh, animal doesn't have the genes that give it color. The other could be a leucistic animal, where it has the genes, but those color-reflecting cells are turned off. So and, and from the way we look at them, their phenotype, what we see, they may appear to be identically the same. And you really don't know which they are. But So that's, that's probably the most common um, thing we see is an, an animal that's an albino, or we talk about it here, or a partial albino where it's got a patch that doesn't have color except for white. and That would be a piebald individual. So those are the two, the two most common that we see and hear about. And I guess especially
1: if uh, if an animal is using color for some sort of camouflage, uh, obviously uh, this would create quite a
3: problem if they don't have that color. Exactly, and we see pictures of things like piebald deer, or albino deer, or a melanistic deer, and those kinds of things. The, the the alligators that are in captivity now that were found in the Louisiana swamp that are about thirty forty years old now, the white alligators, and and those kinds of things. But it's those kind of color variations are actually more common in smaller animals. But those are prey items, and if you're a uh, snake that's white, or a small turtle that's white, or a frog that's white, or a crawfish that's blue, you're going to get eaten pretty quickly, unfortunately. So we they're more common, but we don't see them as often because they don't last as long. They have problems either capturing their own food or else becoming food.
2: Yeah, think about that little baby alligator under the water, because they're just almost iridescent white, and a bass swimming by. They're, they're, a bass or a great yeah, blue heron. So they really show up. It's amazing that they make it.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for our guest Robert Smith today, give us a call. Dr. Major is here ready to take some pet questions, and also we always like to hear your wildlife questions and observations. So give us a call at 1877 MPB ring. It's 1877 672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So you threw a couple terms at us. Melanistic, you said, is uh, the,
3: um, the ones that have color. Is that right? A melanistic individual be one that the colors turn completely on, so they're black. Mm-hmm. And that's the exact, what we think of as exactly the opposite of an albino or a leucistic individual would be a melanistic one. And about, you know, coyotes are becoming more and more common in the state of Mississippi. About 10% of the coyote population is black. We have a melanistic, uh, uh coyote population in Mississippi and, and across the southeast. And, uh, melanistic, every now and then there's a melanistic deer that's harvested or a melanistic fox squirrel or gray squirrel. So there's some really interesting things going on out there that we don't see very often. All right. We talked about how
1: albinism affects that. Again, I would imagine though, uh, if you're using color for for camouflage, maybe the, the the black would would cause problems in some instances as well.
3: Exactly. It's not blending. A, a, a black squirrel it isn't blending in with the bark. Uh, he he movement keys in a red tail hawk to come pick him off, and the red tail hawk's able to keep his eye on him because he's not blending in. He doesn't have any cryptic coloration at all. And then the leucistic, you said, was uh, the, the it's again, it's a, a natural thing where the, the color is there, but the gene is turned off. Is that right? That's exactly right. It's, uh, it's an, a good example of a leucistic individual, the, the, the white alligators at the New Orleans Zoo are leucistic. Another good example is the white tigers. The white tigers have black stripes and so there's there's two different kinds of melanin there's really more than two different kinds but the melanocytes that carry those cells the black stripe is still turned on but the orange color those lighter colored melons are turned off. And so those white tigers are a leucistic individual. And that's the, 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 all this is carried by genes. And when you start seeing something, whether it's a piebald or an albino or a uh, melanistic individual, those things are, if you go back to high school biology and all your Punnett squares, and those kinds of things, those things are homozygous recessive. Um, and so, a lot of times those same genes that carry color information have other issues. And so a lot of the white tigers have what we call a bulldog face or a shortened rostrum, shortened nose. and They have breathing issues and some of those things. Our piebald deer, a lot of times they have a scoliosis, curvature of the spine, or a Roman nose, or bowed legs. And so a lot of times there's other traits going along with those um, coat-colored variations that uh, affect other parts of the animal's life as well, which also impacts survival.
1: Um, is there any th- uh, study about do, do these animals uh, that have these traits are they able to breed sort of normally with the with the
3: quote unquote normal animals? They are, and and you see these things, and we see. A, a, I've worked on properties where we have populations of piebald deer or, or uh, leucistic squirrels, those kinds of things, and you see the ones that are that are uh, homozygous recessive, and you can tell that they have that gene. The ones that are heterozygous. They're carrying that same gene, but we never see it. And so they're breeding and they're carrying it. And so that, that the, hum, the homozygous recessive traits pop up at some normal level in that population. And we typically see them in the same area again and again. Um, if you look at the pet trade, particularly the reptile amphibian pet trade, um, people, you see lots and lots of color variation. Uh, reptiles and burr, I mean, uh, mammals and birds have melanocytes. Um, reptiles, amphibians, fish, Crustaceans have xanophores, um, which are a little bit different. They're more complicated. They have a lot more color variation. You've got yellows and blacks and oranges and blues and iridescent pieces. And so in the reptile amphibian hobby pet trade, you start seeing things that are um, a het-hypo boa, a heterozygous hypomelanistic boa constrictor that's for sale. And so you see lots of different color variations that are intensively bred. And you start looking, we think, in our pet world, um, our dogs and our cats and our horses. We see line bred things in the reptile amphibian fancier trade. Some of those have lineages going back 16, 17, 20 generations hmm. where they're intensively in, intentionally crossbreeding these things to create designer colors that are just out of this world. I think
1: there might be some ethical issues that go along with that. It might be something we can discuss. We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion. We're visiting today with our guest Robert Smith, Coastal Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, talking about variations in animal colors. Also, Doctor Majors here, ready to take some pet questions. So give us a call if you'd like to join the conversation at one eight seven seven MPB ring. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464. You can send us an email animals at MPB online. Org. We'll be back with more after this. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, featuring a 100,000-gallon aquarium, 300 acres of natural landscapes, and two and a half miles of walking trails. Information on exhibits and special events at msnaturalscience.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children, from acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces, and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org.
0: Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio.
1: Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, uh, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today, Robert Smith, the coastal coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We're talking about variations in animal colors today. If you have a question about that or a question about your pet, please give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 877 672 seven four six four or you can send us an email it's uh, animals at mpbonline.org. so Robert before the break you were telling us how especially in the in the reptile world you know that there there's all this breeding going on to get these exotic colors and that sort of thing and I kind of the, the first thing that popped into my mind is is the idea of of, um, of ethics because as you mentioned sometimes along with these color variations come some other things so is there kind of discussion um, in in the past pet world about whether that's really a good idea to keep sort of fooling
3: around with nature to get these weird colors? There's definitely discussion in the pet world, um, whether it's talking about white tigers or whether you're talking about uh, designer boa constrictors or, or um, ball pythons or whatever. Um, and the the reputable breeders are looking to make sure they've got the genetic diversity there and uh, to breed out those quote unquote deformities that we see. Associated with some of these things are to help not carry on those traits. It's just like the same in the, the pet world that Dr. Major's familiar with, where uh, you don't want to breed dogs that have hip dysplasia. The, so the, the people that are paying attention are trying to do the right thing, uh, but as always, there's financial pressures when you start dealing with wildlife that are our pets.
1: Mm-hmm. So we've talked about uh, you know some of the reasons or one of the reasons I guess for for the color variation being um, camouflage. Uh, are there some other reasons why uh, various
3: animals uh, would would change colors maybe throughout the year or at certain certain times? There cert- certainly are, and we see that in um, in birds, uh, particularly waterfowl that have a, uh, have molts between two different color variations during the year, and typically more camouflage colors for the hens when they're on the nest and need to escape predation. Uh, more colorful pieces on the mail when they want to attract a mate. Um, And if we talk some of our friends from up in the northern part of the US, they have animals that change color to match the season with the snow and snowshoe hares or, or grouse, carmigan uh, being two some of the examples. Um, down here, we don't see things that uh, change color quite that dramatically. Um, we see things that have local color variation a lot of times, and a local po- population or an ecotype, uh, particularly with some of the smaller reptiles, amphibians, those kinds of things. Um, but so, and and we when we see birds, most of the birds change colors. During the year, and their breeding plumage looks different from their basic plumage and uh, when uh, it can get very, very confusing uh, for people trying to learn uh, their birds when things change so you mentioned uh, interesting the like the animals
1: up north that the, the snow hair and things that change for the the winter to to blend in with the snow and again again. Is that a trait that uh, it's the survival of the fittest kind of thing? To where because they can
3: do it, they adapt, and so that becomes when, when animals have have something like that that makes them survive at higher rates, they breed at higher rates, and so it's it's an adaptive feature that helps those guys survived greater. Uh, going back into the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, there's a moth in Europe that was uh, light gray with black spots. And then as the industrial age happened and we had lots of soot, they were burning mostly coal and wood in Europe at that point in time. And the trees started getting black with smut and smoke in the cities. Uh, the moths that survived were the black ones with gray spots. And so those moths completely reversed coloration as an adaptive feature because there's higher survival and higher reproductive Rates. And so having having these traits in our animal world
4: that we see as anomalies gives us a genetic diversity for the animals to
3: respond to changing
4: conditions. That was not as much a mutation as it was selection based on uh a environmental change, right? Exactly. Right.
1: This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven Six seven two seven four six four. You can send an email to animals at online dot org. So, um, have you managed to to document some of the
3: color variations in Mississippi through photographs? I have. I, I take a, a lot of pictures, and um, I don't go out and chase oddly colored animals. But <laughs> if I see an oddly colored animal, I certainly photograph it. And. Um, and at the same point in time, we see these things show up on Facebook all the time where somebody's got a picture of a, of an albino or a piebald hummingbird that comes through or a piebald deer or you go back to the, the early part of the century, um, the animals that were mounted. The, there's a uh, amelanistic raccoons, light colored raccoons, a lot of old raccoons in several of these collections. And um, when people start seeing these oddly colored animals, we're fascinated by them. Mm hmm.
1: All right, so again, piebald is a partial white, like white spots or, or that sort of thing. And again, we had talked about uh, the, the the way that some the the leucistic and the melanistic animals are at a little bit of a disadvantage. Uh, what
3: about the piebald? I guess, can they hide the spots that don't blend in well? They, they typically shine through the woods. And like I say, I worked on a large property that had uh, a fairly high density of piebald animals. And when you start seeing piebald deer or white deer show up on hunting clubs, typically one of two things happen. That hunting club either says, that's the target and I want that animal. I want on its hide, I want to stretch it, I want to get it mounted, or nobody shoot that and they protect it. And so I worked on a large property that they protected these animals. And uh, so we saw lots of them and you're going through the woods in the spring and everything's green and there's this big patch of white up there's like, oh, go pick somebody cooler or something, blew off in the woods, go pick it up. You go over there in the white patch, Jumps up and (laughs) runs away. And so those things attract our eyes so we see color, and it does the same thing for predators. So the animals with white patches, they typically attract our eye a whole lot quicker than an animal that's, quote, unquote, normally colored.
1: Um, So we were also talking about, you would mentioned birds, uh, but I think also don't, like from juvenile to adult, the birds
3: uh, tend to change colors as well. Uh, is that part of all this? Exactly. And and a lot of birds uh uh little blue heron's a great example. When a little blue heron's hatch all a fuzzy little muppet looking critter with fuzz everywhere and then it turns white for several years. And then it uh as it morphs into a uh, to changes molts into its uh, slate blue coloration. It has a, some people call it a zebra heron, or actually call it a pied heron. And we talk about pie ball and pied, and there's pied crows and pied bill grebes and, and pied horses. And we talk about those things that are pied. That old pied mare that my Uncle Bob used to have, those kinds of things. And that's a, a, one with a white splotch on it. And so they call these, uh, They early they uh, said that that was a whole different, people assumed that was a whole different species. They call it a pied heron. Uh, and it was actually as a bird was transitioning from a white juvenile to a slate blue adult as it molted. So are there advantages uh, in the natural world for having the young uh, uh, be a different color and eventually uh, morph into what they would be as an adult? A lot, a lot of times the young things are more cryptically colored. They're better at hiding. or they are more uh, brilliantly colored and to stay together better and if you separate behavior between adults and young or male and female a lot of times they have access to better resources whether it's for food or for shelter or those kinds of things you don't put as much effort into one area and you get to higher survival for those critters
1: this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're talking variation in animal colors this morning with our guest. He's Robert Smith, the Coastal Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We've got some open phone lines, so we'd like to hear from you this morning. Join our conversation by calling us at one mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Dr. Major is also here ready for your pet questions. And uh, Dr. Major, I know that I've learned for the last couple of years that I really probably shouldn't put up um, a Christmas tree because my cat is just uh, can't resist and and uh, it starts at the lower branches and tends to knock uh, ornaments off and that kind of thing. Uh, But what are some other things that we associate with Christmas decorations, maybe that kind of thing uh, that we need to be concerned about when it comes to our pets?
4: Well, of course, you know, a lot of times you put up the Christmas tree for the cat, you know, and, that, uh, it, and just, you know, if you have some priceless heirloom ornament, don't put it on the tree. Uh, but the cats love that. Uh, as far as things that you think about that the cat could get into trouble with, one of those that comes to mind first is tinsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, cats love to play with string, and tinsel would classify as that. And if they actually can embed in the intestine based on the way the cat uh uh, has peristaltic waves and string can do that, but also tinsel can do that. So I, I would be very careful with tinsel. If you have a cat, uh, other things, uh, a lot of people put, uh, some kind of preservative in the water, uh, mm-hmm. for the Christmas tree that depending on what you use, that could be toxic. So those are things right there. Uh, glass ornaments dang cats will crunch down almost anything. And, uh, or dogs, and certainly that would be something to be very careful with. Uh, there are other things. Poinsettias—they've uh, kind of taken that off the really toxic list, but it can cause some severe salivation uh, and gastric type upset. But usually, it's not. We used to think it was pretty toxic, but not as toxic as, as maybe we thought at one time. I know. One
1: year uh, when I was in college, we had a cat, and we uh, got him some catnip for Christmas, and
4: uh, he was climbing the Christmas tree by the end of Christmas Day. This yes, so. crack for cats—pretty much, basically, what you could say. But they—they they love it. I always like to put it in a toy or something like that, and they'll—they'll they'll really play with it, roll on it, and have a great time. Well, And again, uh, with
1: my cat, uh, he's he's got enough energy uh, on his own, so I'm afraid if I were to give him a little extra boost there, I, I'm not sure what my house would look like. <laughs> <Can> I, <laughs> you, look you be right there with him in <laughs> case you need to intervene. That's right. uh, we've got a caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to Alex, okay. who has called in from Mobile today. Good morning, Alex. Hey, good morning, guys. What do you have for um, us?
5: I have kind of a weird question. I don't know if you guys will be able to help, but um, in watching nature documentaries and dealing with birds and stuff, you see these, like, crazy, mind-boggling courtship behaviors. Yeah. And, you know, I realize that, like, you know, they're only showing, like, the really cool ones, I guess, so, you know, maybe there's a, a confirmation bias there going on or something, but do we see that kind of behavior in, in I don't know, our, our sort of normal everyday birds? And, and, and in particular, do we see, like, that maybe changing over time?
2: Um, Yeah, I'm sure it changes over time because all activities and appearances do in animals, but it would be very gradual. But, um, yes, I'm trying to think of some instances. I've seen some fairly common birds do some pretty amazing things. Uh, Male cardinals will really show off a lot and um, fight other males. Um, We've got
3: at least three good instances here in Mississippi that, birds that do cool things like that. And different birds have different breeding strategies, some of them. And you see the more elaborate displays in birds that typically pair bond and are monogamous that breed one male to one female. And there's other birds that one male may breed several females. Uh, A good example would be a a turkey that one male could breed a whole lot of different females. And they have an elaborate courtship display with strutting and drumming and calling and those kinds of things. We've got a, a very highly endangered bird in Mississippi called the Mississippi Sandhill Crane that lives down there on the coast where I'm at, and uh, the dances of the cranes are fabled in the Orient, and they're really something to watch here in the U.S. I've as well. I've seen
2: that, and that's incredible, yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Woodcock are pretty rarely seen, but are amazing when you do get to see one do that display, and they go up high and do the dive coming down and make a strange sound while they're They, um, they sit spiraling there on the ground down.
3: and go yeah. pee and they fly up in the air and they fall out of the air and the the wind whistles across special feathers on their wings they make a as they fall out of the air and they do that again and again right at dusk and um there's a chance to go see and hear that out in the delta uh with the delta wind birds group uh should be coming up this february or so mm-hmm. something like that um the birds that nest on the mississippi coast the least turns the males will go out and catch small fish and bring back and strut in front of the females until she takes that fish from. So we've got lots of things like that that happen here in Mississippi and in Alabama as well. And so it's some really neat stuff to see and understand that how those birds are trying to attract a mate or trying to establish a stronger pair bond.
2: You know, um, to me, one of the more fun things about birding or watching birds is not <clears throat> just making a list of how many different birds you saw, but taking a little time and watching what they're doing, particularly in the spring when, they're, when there's babies and their nests and they're mating. There's just so much going on. And, of course, a lot of to bird ID now has moved towards sound, and a lot of that is, is uh, related to mating as well. I uh, Imagine that color variation could be a problem in mating because a lot of color in male birds has been developed, we think, to attract females. So has anybody studied that that you there, know
3: of? There have been some study documents, documentation of that where birds that are a strange color, lacking a color or having too much of a color, have a lower breeding success because they are lower on the pecking list for getting the female. I'm wondering, too, if some of these
1: maybe elaborate uh, rituals have, again, evolved from the idea of one bird was smart enough to start showing off to the ladies, Mm -hmm. and when that worked, you know, it's like, hey, I need to try that, too, and then it was maybe,
3: you know, can I one-up the the bird that lives down the street, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, it's based on success.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And we see that in the bird world where the birds, quote-unquote, learn new songs. The songs are evolving over time and changing over time, and uh, the young birds learn from where they're at, and a lot of bird songs have a regional accent, just like uh, hmm. we have a regional accent across the, uh, all across the world with the English language, or much less in the United States, the birds have the same quote-unquote accents as well. And I think penguins, I've
1: read somewhere, that the, they give a rock, I guess, and so the bigger, shinier rock uh, that you can <laughs> present, uh, you have a better chance of mating there. So, hey, we need to take another quick break. When we get back, we're going to continue our discussion with our guest, Robert Smith, the Coastal Coordinator for Li- Wildlife Mississippi. We're talking about variation and animal colors this morning. Also, Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions, and we always like general wildlife questions and observations. So give us a call. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this.
2: this is an important message for all MPB viewers who use an antenna to receive MPB TV. On Monday, December 12th, our .1 and .2 channels will change. MPB HD will move to one. A brand new 24-7 children's channel, PBS Kids, will premiere soon on .2. Subchannels .3 and four will continue to carry Create TV and MPB Think Radio just as before. Cable and satellite viewers shouldn't be affected. If you have questions, please visit our website at mpbonline.org.
1: Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We have a guest in studio today with us. It's Robert Smith, the coastal coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We've been taking some pet questions, some wildlife questions, and also talking specifically today about variations in animal colors. Got some open phone lines if you'd like to call in. The number is one mpb ring It's one 877 mpb 672 Send an email to animals at org. Before we go to the phone lines, Dr. Major we had talked a little bit about you know pets uh, and things to look out for uh, during Christmas decorations, that kind of thing uh, and we've often talked about uh, people food that you shouldn't give to your pets and I'm thinking especially here in the holiday season, one thing that maybe we could be reminded of, uh, chocolate comes to mind. Are, are there some other foods that we s- sort of associate with uh, Christmas that
4: you might want to f- uh, worry about or, or be concerned about? Well, a lot of times, change in diet can cause some real issues. Uh, let's say that you had uh, steak or ham or something like that, and shared it with a pet. It can cause some gastroenteritis, diarrhea, vomiting. Uh, always be careful with excess. Mm-hmm. And I know most people do share some things with their pets. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> I can tell you not to, but uh, it's it's you know, pets are part of the family. But be careful with what you do and the volume of what you do. I'm not advocating feeding people food, but at the same time, I know it gets done. Be careful with scraps, uh, that sort of thing, or anything that has a lot of grease or uh, seasoning. Mm-hmm. Even though the animal might eat it, it can cause some issues. So those those are just some guidelines, really, from the standpoint of what to share or not to share. I always like uh, pet treats, though. Which you can give your pet if you want to put some on the table. You're eating. You can always give a pet a treat, and usually they're happy. That's a, that's an interesting. I've never thought about that, but that's a good idea.
1: Just you're right. Bring the the dog treats or the cat treats to the table with you, and uh, they they can uh, enjoy the fun without uh, endangering them too much. And also, I guess and, you know we know about chicken bones. Uh, are
4: turkey bones also um, kind of that where they can splinter and cause some trouble? Uh, across the board, let's say don't give your pet bones. Now, I know there are uh, dogs that eat bones every day and do fine. However, there are dogs that die from eating bones. They get a splinter, can penetrate into the uh, through the intestine, into the uh, abdomen, and cause death. Uh, so be careful with that. Uh, and I would say, again, let's don't give bones to our to our pets.
1: All right. And certainly moderation. Little tiny bits if you're going to give them a treat, uh, but uh, save them people food for the folks at the table. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines beginning again in Mobile. We say good morning to Mikey. Hello, Mikey.
5: Hey, good morning. Um, I, I, my question is regarding the animal variation thing in wildlife. I've seen personally um, a box turtle with a black shell. And very, very vivid. I mean, we're talking almost iridescently vivid red eyes. Now, I know that it wasn't the lighting because this happened to be in a mating process with another turtle um, who would look like, you know, just a regular box turtle. Um, Is is this a a regular kind of a turtle that I don't know about? And my other question is, um, I've also seen uh, a nest that I've... At first thought, might be an alligator nest, to tell you the truth. They were large eggs, but I do have a lot of waterfowl in that area. It was in an area um, near a, a boathouse where uh, occasionally the tot, when the tide gets really high, the nest would flood. But when I, you know, looking around in, in case of the alligator, I went down and, and picked up one of the eggs, cracked it on the dock, and it was a
1: viable bird egg, obviously. All right. So wondering what kind of bird that might be? Yes, sir. Or uh, birds. All right. Uh, I don't know. Any any thoughts, oh. I guess, to depend on what the egg looked like and, and that sort of thing? Uh, Robert, what about the the other thing about the, the turtle?
3: Uh, the box turtles down... Around Mobile and along the Gulf Coast, we have what we used to call the Gulf Coast box turtle, and it's no longer listed as a subspecies anymore. But it was a more brightly colored box turtle that could, as they got older, a lot of times their shells did turn black. And the males and females in box turtles have very different eye color. Um, Males, I believe, are red and females are brown. Uh, And so that redness can be really, really bright, as you saw. And so that's that's pretty cool. That's a pretty normal observation. Uh, The bird egg could have been... Canada goose, any number of things, uh, depending on size and location.
5: I have a lot of herons at that time. There was the mallard family that lived in that area, um, uh, egrets, and ducks, of course, other, you know, other kinds of ducks. So are, are, the, are the eggs still there? And, and, and ospreys? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, I haven't seen that nest again lately. The, uh, the landscape changed with uh, the, the river flooding during hurricanes and things. So, no. and, and I haven't been there as much, but um, will be in the future. Yeah. Um, and, so and I was just uh, hoping for information. Um, I have seen the box turtles, have not seen that particular sort of variegation again, but I, I do have gopher turtles also in that area.
2: And if you find when they're reptile eggs, you'll the difference. When you said cracked it open, we knew it had to be a bird because right. it, it of, yeah,
5: wasn't rubbery. Yeah, it's not
2: leathery. Yeah, so you'll have to kind of tear open a, a reptile egg. Oh, and Mikey, you had called us a couple of weeks ago about gopher tortoise and what they and if they if there could be a problem with them eating poisonous plants. And I talked with um, a biologist that works with gopher tortoise a lot, and he said as long as it's free-ranging and it's not confined in any way, there should not ever be a problem with it eating the wrong thing. You can plant what you wanted to plant in your yard and be assured, but he said just be sure you don't confine them in an area where they're forced to eat something. Then they might eat the wrong thing. But...
5: That it, would defeat my whole purpose of enjoying living there. I, I, somehow I
1: thought you probably were not confined <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Mikey. Always good to hear from you. Let's yeah. go next to uh, Tupelo. Leslie has called in today. Good morning, Leslie.
6: Good morning, y'all. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, i has been coming kind of out of left field with what y'all have been talking about, but I guess with the weather, it's sort of appropriate. I have a little patient at home who, uh, it's a little kitty cat. He's about two years old. He broke his leg and has had the cone on for about a week now. And suddenly last night we came home and he was just sneezing all over the place. Um, so he had antibiotics for his broken leg, um, last week. And so those are still rolling around in him and he should be fine with that. But he is just sneezing at the storm. He's got, fluid coming from his eyes and you know i just know he's extremely uncomfortable especially with that e-cone already he's just not having a good time so i'm wondering if y'all have any suggestions on how to provide him whatever comfort i may um sure. i want to
5: spoil him if i can so give let, me
4: your let ideas me, <laughs> let me ask you one thing is the sure. uh, discharge from his nose is it clear or is it mucousy clear okay eyes same thing that's right, All right. You know, this may be more of an allergic reaction than an actual cold. Uh, okay. And he's stressed because of the broken leg. I don't know if he had mm-hmm. to stay at the vet for any length of time. He did. But, uh, and there are viruses that can, can occur. We don't think that our cats actually have the same type of cold that you and I would have. But they can stress, and it any time you've got a stress, it can cause them to have some issues. Uh, he's already on antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And uh, did he have an open wound on the leg? He did, yeah. Okay. And that's the reason for the cone, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he would like Mm -hmm. to get get out of that. He
6: had surgery, yeah.
4: Okay. Uh, I'd get him out of that cone as soon as you can. I think he'll be a whole whole lot better off, but trust your vet on that. I can't see him, so I don't know. Uh, I don't believe that you need to do anything. You could give a little bit of antihistamine, like Benadryl might help some if it's just strictly an allergy. Uh, Benadryl, on the other hand, can cause him to be drowsy and possibly even constipated. So let's don't overdo anything like that. If he continues to do that, or if you notice that one, he stops eating, or two, this uh, discharge becomes more purulent, I would certainly get him back to your vet.
6: Okay. Thank
4: you.
1: All right. Thanks for the call, Leslie. Let's uh, move on next to uh, Kathleen from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen
6: morning, guys. I wanted to talk to someone about crows. I have a couple of crows that are acting almost like pets. I started going to feed the cats, and I would shake the can. And this is months, and I, I, I didn't understand what was going on at first. When I shook the can, all of a sudden there were crows in this two, three trees on the side of the property. Well, <clears throat> I had a hired hand working for me that day, and he said, oh, them crows must know you. I said, yeah, the, the big one is Bob. And I didn't say too much about it. Well, the next day when he came back, that crow knows where he was getting his little treats like bread or whatever. He stood in that tree. As soon as he heard me, he started crowing. And my hand says, well, you're, your friend's back. I said, yeah, that's Bob. He says, "How does he know his name?" And I just cracked up laughing. I said, "I call all of them Bob." <laughs> but they—they they know me in the yard because that same evening, I don't know what time, but it was there in the morning when I got up. A great big red leaf, right where I was feeding them, and I don't have anything red, and it was odd that. And I said, ah, oh, it was Bob. <laughs> he brought me a gift for putting out the little treats."
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard that crows are really quite intelligent uh, birds.
2: Yeah, they're very smart. And I have heard that they will bring you gifts as um,
1: they whether trade. They,
2: a bribe to get more <laughs> food or whether, yeah, a trade or a, a, a thank you gift.
3: They will also take um, things. Uh-huh. Yeah,
6: yeah. They, I put some string, like they said, and some um, lint from the dryer. That was hard to explain to a friend of mine because I had a box of lint. She goes, What are you doing with the lint? <laughs> I said, It's for the birds, the hummingbirds. And I didn't think anything more of it. But one season after that, when I came back, I noticed this little bird's nest had a lot of maroon in it. And I went, I said, Oh, yeah, I got new tiles over the winter. And that little bird used all the lint. It,
5: it
1: goes around, comes around.
6: Yep. All right. All right, guys. Thank
1: you. Thanks for the call. Let's uh, take one final, break this out. When we get back, we've got Barbara from Picky, and I know she's a bird owner, and she has a comment on birds, so we'll get to that. And also, we're looking for your phone call. Give us a call today at one eight seven seven mpb ring if you'd like to join the conversation. The phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show, animals, at org. We'll be back to wrap up the program after this.
0: election is over and the nation has a new president, Donald Trump, and a new chapter in history has begun. We don't know what lies ahead, but NPR will keep bringing you the best coverage from coast to coast to help you make sense of it all. So listen every day.
1: I'm Jeremy Hobson. During the campaign, President-elect Donald Trump promised to build a wall along the Mexican border and to deport undocumented immigrants who are already here. You're going to have a deportation force, and you're going to do it humanely. We'll talk with an immigration lawyer about the calls he's getting as Trump prepares to
0: take office. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today, Robert Smith. We've been taking some pet questions and also uh, talking primarily today about variations in animal colors, but we've talked a lot about uh, birds and other wildlife as well. Let's go back to the phone lines. Barbara uh, from Picayune has been holding on for us. Good morning, Barbara. Go ahead. Uh, Good morning.
6: Oh, your topic has just brought to mind a poem by Gerald, Gerald Manley Hopkins called Pied Beauty. And it begins, Glory be to God for dappled things. You might want to look that up and read it. And um, it just was, seemed appropriate to your topic, so that's why I'm calling. Right.
2: Thank you. I remember that one.
1: Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Good to hear from you, Barbara. Let's uh, move on next. Uh, Sue's called in from Beaumont today. Good morning, Sue.
2: Yes. Uh, I-, I wanted to ask the bird man, what happened to all the cattle egrets? Because I used to see them out in the field uh, following the cattle, you know, looking for bugs, and they would... Uh, look for minnows in the ditches next Highway 98, but
6: I haven't seen cattle egret in a couple of years. What, what happened to them?
3: It, it's probably a change in habitat types. We've been seeing a change in habitat types across the southeast, and the cattle egrets, as per their name, although they're they're from Africa and are an invasive exotic here, uh, really like cattle, I and mean, we've had a really rapid decrease in the Amount of small cattle farms scattered across Mississippi, and we're seeing fewer and fewer places for those guys to feed. And they're they move around, they're not what we'd call migratory, uh, but they're more transient. They'll move around to wherever the good habitat is, and so they want to be close to some good, wet um, breeding ponds and some good foraging areas. And uh, with the droughts and the decrease in cattle, we're seeing fewer and fewer of those guys in our area. The birds.
5: Well, what about wood thrushes? Because the wood thrushes have disappeared. I used to hear them out in the woods
2: out back, but I, well, what happened to them? Are they, is habitat for them, too, huh?
3: It is, and wood wood thrushes have a, a glorious song, as you know. Yeah, and, I love them. Uh-huh. Um, whether that's the summer breeding habitat or the wintering habitat down in Central and South America, we really not, don't know, but the wood, prop, wood thrush population is they're one of our species of concern. If you look at uh, the the data across the, the U.S. as a whole, the population seems to have experienced a slow decline. Oh, and so uh, that's one of the species that we're trying to figure out now what's going on and how we can help.
2: Well, thank you. Appreciate
3: it. All right, good to hear from you, Sue. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on
1: MPB Think Radio. We're talking today with Robert Smith, the Coastal Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, about uh, variations in animal colors. You know, so, so you mentioned cattle. That's a, another thing. A lot of color
3: variations in cattle. And again, w- with the white spots, would that be the the piebald? A lot of a lot of our. You, and I can't remember the the breed of cattle. We call them an Oreo cow that has a uh, black on both ends and white in the middle. Uh, but that's a, a piebald functionally.
1: Uh, and also we talked about uh, some animals that change colors with the seasons, and you mentioned some in, in the northern part of the country, the snow hare, I think we talked about. Are there any animals uh, here in Mississippi that seasonally change their colors?
3: There are, um, some of the birds in particular, um, and that, that's not necessarily a change in response to the way the the um, habitat's changing, but a, a change in response to becoming more drably colored outside of breeding season where they have a higher survival rate. And so um,
1: so we talked about uh, that, and I guess, is, is camouflage the main reason why
3: we see color change in animals? Camouflage or breeding. Um, we talk about birds changing color. Uh, one of the other things that changes color a lot is our fish. Mm-hmm. We don't have very many fish watchers in Mississippi, but some of our fish, particularly our smaller stream fish, some of our darters and some of our minnows and things. Uh, Get glorious, quote unquote, breeding plumage. And so the, there's the change in color to become more brightly colored to attract a mate, or the change in color to uh, change seasonally so that you can have better survival or have a better chance to catch an animal.
1: And then what about, I guess, uh, it, a chameleon, I guess, is the, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that that's the right one, but the, the little lizard like creature that, that can change uh, so many different colors. Uh, they must be able to, because again, to blend in, they
3: must be able to somehow sense what color they need to blend in with. They, they can. And we, we, chameleons, some of our fish, and again, that's getting back to our reptiles and amphibians and fish and, and um, invertebrates. Uh, octopus are even a better changer than the, the chameleon we're talking about here in Mississippi would be the, the Carolina anole. Um, and the chameleon, I mean, it changes color based on how it, I don't want to, Make it be like a person, but how it feels, how how it's stressed. Is it trying to attract a mate? If you catch a chameleon that's green and get it real stressed, it's going to turn brown. If you catch a, a green tree frog and you stress it, it's going to turn brown. Uh, a lot of these squirrel tree frogs, lots of these things are the same way. They they are, they can control their body color to blend in with their surroundings or to reveal stress or or to help attract a mate.
1: We've uh, got just a couple of minutes uh, left if you'd like to work in a phone call the number is 1877 MPB ring it's 1877 672-7464. You can send an email to animals at org. So um, is there anything that we've not covered that, that you wanted to mention? I can't think of anything, Kevin. All right. Uh, Libby, we uh, started the show by talking about the uh, some things coming up at the museum. Why don't you remind folks again about, uh, if you got it there, the, the details, the big event coming up uh, tomorrow, Friday night, uh, the Cajun Christmas.
2: Yes, Cajun Christmas, uh, Friday, December the 9th at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It starts at 5.30 and goes on till 9. And the girl choir, the boy choir will be there singing. Uh, Lots of art activities going on. There's a a place to write letters to Santa Claus. Uh, Of course, they're reading the Cajun Christmas, the Night Before (laughs) Christmas Cajun version, which uh, talks a lot about the animals. And we have different kinds of animals, particularly the Christmas gator. And Christmas gator will be making an appearance. (laughs) And Santa, uh, the Cajun Santa version, likes to go scuba diving and feed the fish. So there'll be Santa sharing treats with the fish um, in scuba gear. And that's always a fun thing to watch.
1: Also, you know, as uh, most of us here in Mississippi know by now, the, the weather is turned cold. We're going to in for a cold snap, and I know our friend Adam Ronkey, who often comes on the program to help us talk about birds, reminds us that uh, if you have a bird bath or some source of water for birds in your area, your backyard or whatever, and it gets real cold like this, uh, please go out. Remember to see if it's uh, if there's any ice there to break that up because uh, the birds need that water, uh, you know, in, in the cold weather as, as much as they do. So make sure that they still have that uh, source of, of water. And Dr. Major, again. Again,
4: for our pets, uh, some uh, quick reminders about cold weather. Sure. Uh, You know, we always think in terms of shelter from the wind, rain, and making sure that adequate water, these are for outside pets, of course, wind, water, and food, but they need shelter from wind and rain especially. And when it gets this cold, it's supposed to be, what, 25, 27, Mm -hmm. something like that. But with a wind chill, uh, it can get much colder than that. So make sure that your pets, a lot of people will... Even if they have outside dogs, for example, they bring them in garage or furnish them with some extra bedding. And uh, I know a lot of people that have set up heaters or lamps in their, in their dog houses. So take good care of them, uh, but don't leave them exposed uh, to the elements where they can't get out of the wind and rain. All right, that's going to wrap us
1: up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Funding provided in part by the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Foundation, and contributions from listeners like you. Thanks to our producer, Jonas Adams, and our call screener, Sam Wells. For Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest, Robert Smith, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned, up next at 10, it's MPB Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells, followed by Southern Remedy at 11. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think